Everybody, how you doing this morning? I'm sure you heard Krispy Kreme, and you're like, how quick can this guy speak, right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully they'll show up. We'll see. Uh, no, they will, because we have great people that are doing that. It's good to be back. Uh, our family was on vacation. We just got back last weekend. We had a great time down at the Outer Banks with about 18 other people. Very, very extended family. Uh, enjoyed our time. They did all the beach things that everybody does at the beach. And I've been telling a couple of people here this morning, they're like, how's your trip? And I said, it's the first time in seven years that I've been here that I left and went away, and I didn't worry about a thing, right? Which means we have an incredible staff and volunteers in place. I didn't stress. I cut out my email, didn't do social media. It was a wonderful, wonderful, restful time. And so that was really our big road trip for the summer. And hopefully you've got a road trip or two coming up this summer for yourself, and you can get away and rest and take a little break, too. But as I get started this morning, I got a very, very important question I want to ask you, okay? And the question is, how many of you like wrestling, okay? Any wrestling fans? Or if you're from North Carolina like me, it's not wrestling, it's wrestling, right? Call it wrestling down in, in North Carolina, down in the South. Um, now, I'm not, I'm not talking about real wrestling. I'm not talking about high school wrestling or college wrestling or the Olympics. I, I, I'm talking about like NWA, that goes back in the day, right? WWE, uh, how about this one? Glow. Anybody remember Glow? Yeah, that's going way back in, in the day. Let me throw out some names for you. The Von Erich brothers. Anybody remember the Von Erichs? Like the first kind of family of wrestling many years ago. Ricky Steamboat, Hulk Hogan, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. Woo! Right? Remember that? Maybe some more recent ones like The Undertaker and Kane. Stone Cold Steve Austin, and of course the most famous wrestler that's still out there today is making millions and millions of dollars, The Rock. Now I need to let you know, I, I haven't watched wrestling in a long time, it's been a few years, but back in the day I used to, and I didn't watch it a lot, but I watched it enough to, to be familiar with a lot of these wrestlers, but it was for the entertainment factor, right? I, I mean, let's be honest, these are very athletic people who have some really weird skill sets, but, but it was the entertainment factor that was just so powerful. It, it was these storylines that you would follow and, and the celebrations that would take place and, and the challenges and, and the tensions that were, were there. And, and, of course, the alliances that were made. And sometimes the good guys were the bad guys and the bad guys were the, the good guys. And you always had the, the refs who were so inept at their job that were a part of this, right? I think about wrestling, and when I think about wrestling, it really is kind of a microcosm of life. Because in our, our lives, we have this storyline that we're part of. We have this, this journey that you and I are on. And there's celebrations that happen. There are challenges that take place. There are struggles and tensions. There's alliances. And sometimes the bad guys are the good guys, and the good guys are the bad guys. But if we look at our life, it really is this, this wrestling match that we have, and sometimes that wrestling match feels like it's going on every single day. And so today, as we continue this series called, series called Road Trip, we're going we're gonna to look at a wrestling match that takes place in the Old Testament to this guy named Jacob. Now, if you were here last week, Joel actually told an event in the life of Jacob. We're going to fast forward in his life about 20 years and look at another event that takes place. But before we do that, it's a wrestling match he has, but before we get there, if you weren't here last week, let me give you a quick little synopsis of this series. When you look at the Bible, it's pretty amazing. Almost every story you read, they're on a road trip, right? 
like they're always going somewhere and in these road trips that they're on these journeys that they're taking there are these these moments where they learn something about themselves they, they learn a little something about other people but more importantly they learn something about God and so as we go through this series throughout the summer that's what we're looking at we're looking at these stories and see how they connect with us we're seeing how they connect with you and I and what we learn on the journey we're on what we learn about other people what we learn about ourselves and of course more importantly what we learn about God and so that's what this whole series is about but today again we're going back to the life of Jacob let me give you a little more background of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and maybe you're familiar with them, maybe you're not. You probably know Jacob's grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. You may be familiar with them. And, uh, and when he's born, he's born a twin. It's him, and he has another brother. His brother's name is Esau. Well, Esau is actually born first of the twins, so that means he's the oldest brother. He gets all the birthright. He gets the main inheritance from his father, from the family. He gets the family blessing. Well, <laughs> Jacob's mom and he get to, and Jacob get together, and they, they come up with this pretty elaborate scheme where they end up stealing the birthright from Esau. They, they lie to Isaac, the dad, and they're able to make this happen, and it's not meant for Isaac, I, or, or not meant for e, uh, Jacob. Jacob's not supposed to have this birthright, but he's able to steal it from Esau. Esau is upset, as you can imagine, because this was a pretty important part of being in a family in those days, especially being the older brother. And because it's stolen from him, he's mad at Jacob, really, really mad. And, and he says, I am going to kill my brother Jacob, okay? And so that kind of gives you a little bit of background of where we are in the story. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a really fun family to be a part of, doesn't it? Like, they're not taking any beach trips together. I, I'm pretty sure of that. Well, Jacob runs away. He's, uh, he's afraid. He, he's, he's getting as far away as he can from his brother because of what his brother has said about him. And so where we find ourselves in Jacob's life right now, again, this is 20 years later, about a little over that maybe. 20 years later, here is Jacob. And he's actually getting ready to see Esau for the first time in 20 years the next day, okay? But here we are the evening before, and we're going to spend our time in Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32, starting with verse 22, it reads like this. It says, During the night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions this left Jacob all alone in the camp. If we look back at Jacob's life, he leaves home and he has nothing. I mean, he doesn't have any family, he doesn't have any servants, he doesn't have any possessions. But here we are 20 years later, and what do we see? We see that he is married. He's got two wives and some shenanigans that happened there, and these two wives actually are sisters. And that's another sermon for another day. And we'll leave it for that. But, but he's married now, and he's got a couple of servant wives, and they've got kids, and they've got possessions, and they've got stuff, and they've got a lot of livestock. So over these 20 years, Jacob has made something of himself. He's, he's done well. But what we read right here, again, he's getting ready to go see his brother Esau. But if you read this part, what he does is first he helps his family across this river. Then he goes back to where the camp was, and then he helps the servants and all his other possessions and all the livestock get across the river. But he stays there in the camp. 
Now, why does he stay alone in that camp? Why doesn't he go across the river with everybody else? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons for this. And, and, and part of this comes from what happens or what Jacob finds out. His, his plan is to go see Esau, right? Well, he does a little recon mission. So people come back like, hey, uh, Esau's not waiting on you. Esau is actually traveling towards you. And Jacob's probably like, okay, well, that's strange, but I think I can handle that. And they're like, oh, by the way, he's got 400 men with him. Now, he's not talking about 400 men who just like to ride horses, all right? They're, they're talking about 400 men who are warriors or fighters or soldiers. And so Esau and these 400 fighters are coming towards Jacob and where Jacob is. Now, I think there's a couple of reasons Jacob stays there in the camp and doesn't go where everybody else is. The first is I think Jacob's afraid. In fact, he's probably not just afraid. As we look at Jacob's life, he's probably a coward. As we look at him, we see he's a liar, he's conniving, he's deceitful. And I'm guessing in his mind, he's thinking to himself, and this is kind of the person Jacob was. If you read Jacob's life, he, he wasn't really a great person, by the way. But, uh, but if you look at his life and, and what he's thinking here, he's probably thinking, I'm going to have my family and all my servants over here in this other place across the river. And if Esau comes and he starts to kill them, then I'm going to have time to run away and take care of myself. I mean, this is the kind of person that, uh, that Jacob was. And so I think there's this fear factor there. But there's also stress. What are the last words that he hears his brother Esau uh, say about him? Esau says, I will kill my brother Jacob. And so there's a stress factor that's there for Jacob of what's going to happen to him. And so you've got fear, you've got stress in his life. And so he sits there in the camp alone because he knows this crisis is coming into his life here in the next few hours. How do you deal with the crises you face in your life? When you don't know what's coming next, when you're not prepared for what may come your way, you're not ready for it, you don't expect it. That diagnosis comes back from the doctor, and it's definitely not what you wanted to hear. How do you deal with that crisis in your life? You get up one morning and the person you care for and you love says, hey, I'm done, I, I'm leaving. I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with that crisis in your life? Or the person you care for, maybe they're part of your family, they're a close friend, and, and they just keep giving in to that addiction over and over again. You try to help them and they won't take those steps. How do you, how do you deal with those crises in your life? Maybe we're like Jacob and we run. We try to run from the things that are happening in our life, the struggles that are there. Maybe for others, there are vices that we have. And so when these, these tough times come, crises come around, we jump to those vices trying to, to dull the pain that's there. Or, or maybe you know people like this, and I don't know how they do it. They just act like nothing's going on, right? They, you're like, hey, how's your life going? And you watch it kind of crumbling. They're like, life is great. Life is wonderful. And you know it's not. I mean, maybe that's the way that you handle when crises hit. I don't think we're any different than Jacob. We run sometimes from those crises. And the reasons are the stress that is there and the fear that we have. We're, we're not sure where to go or who to turn to. And, and many times we just feel so lost. And maybe what we look for is just those moments to be alone. To kind of think about what's happening. To contemplate. To, to worry. And, and hopefully... Hopefully to pray. Because that's what we find Jacob does a little bit before this. He's actually spending time 
praying. He's asking God for direction and help. And, and maybe that's the place that we are. And it's one of those crazy things about people who, who don't follow Jesus, right? I mean, how many people do you know that don't go to church, that have no religious background, or they did back in the past, and a crisis hit, and one of the things they start doing is praying, like, hey, God, I don't, I don't know if I believe in you, I don't know if I really care about you, but, man, I don't know what to do right now. And there's this prayer, there's this moment of prayer that, that happens. I mean, how do you deal with these crises that hit you in your life? Because we find Jacob alone thinking about what may happen tomorrow. But look at the rest of verse 24. It says, this left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. This is one of the strangest, weirdest passages, I think, in the Bible, right? Here we have Jacob. He's trying to be alone. He's contemplating. He's thinking. He's worrying. He's probably praying. He's trying to figure this thing out. What's going to happen to him tomorrow? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? And in the midst of that, this dude, like, WWE style, jumps off the top rope, right, comes in with a clothesline, uh, maybe does a little suplex right here in this moment. And for the rest of the night, Jacob ends up wrestling with this guy. Put yourself in a Jacob spot. How would you react to this? You're, you're going through this tough time, you're going through this crisis, and then all of a sudden people jump into your life and they're bringing their own stuff and their own struggles, their own, their own tensions and crisis into your life. I mean, how are you going to handle it there at that moment? Because what does that do? It seemingly brings even more tension and, and more struggles to what you're going through. What happens in this story, verse 25, when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. Jacob ends up wrestling with this guy all night long. And from what we can tell here, jo Jacob's pretty strong. I mean, he holds his own. Now, we already know he's pretty strong mentally because of the person that he is. And he's not, again, a good person. He's a conniver. He's lying. He, he's, he's this kind of individual. So mentally, he's pretty strong. But physically we find that he is pretty strong, and he holds his own in this wrestling match that happens all night long, to the point of where this other man could not win. But in the midst of this match, this guy pulls the ultimate wrestling move, right? He says he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. That word touch is actually really important here. Uh, it doesn't mean that the guy, like, pummeled Jacob's hip, doesn't mean he gave him a sidekick to his hip. Doesn't mean he grabbed a rock and, and just crushed Jacob's hip. Doesn't mean he put him in the figure four until he said, you know, I, I give up. It doesn't mean that. What, what that word touched means, means he, he tapped. He tapped Jacob's hip. And it was at that moment that Jacob realizes who he is wrestling against. Verse 26, but Jacob said, I will not let you go. Unless you bless me. If we look at Jacob's life, he has been wrestling his whole life. He's been wrestling his brother Esau. He's been wrestling with his dad Isaac. He's been wrestling with his uncle Laban. He's been wrestling with his ambitions. He's been wrestling with his love life. He's been wrestling with his, his fears. But it's, it's right here in this moment that he realizes something very, very important. That this person that he's been wrestling isn't human, not immortal. He's not wrestling Stone Cold Steve Austin. 
he realizes he's not wrestling his stuff. He hasn't been wrestling his possessions. What he realizes is that he is wrestling and has been wrestling with God. See, for you and I, we look at our lives, and so often we think that we've been wrestling in that relationship. We've been wrestling with that job. We've been wrestling with our physical health, our mental health. We've been wrestling with other people and with stuff. But the reality is what we've truly been wrestling with is God. A good example of this is AA. If you look at the 12 steps of AA, seven of the 12 steps are related to God. Now, why is that the case? Well, AA understands that our addictions are really about us wrestling with God. And for someone to move forward from that addiction, for someone to, to find peace and to find healing that they need, the beginning point is working on that wrestling match that you have with God. But that's true for anything beyond addictions too, right? Like Jacob, we like to use our stuff to try to find peace in our lives. And, and over time, we find it doesn't bring us that peace. It never gets rid of the crisis. It is, it is still there. That, that stuff never protects us from what we are going through. Because the whole time, what we've been doing is we've been wrestling with God. And when we're wrestling with God, that usually means we are in some very, very deep and dark places. And in those places, that is usually where we encounter and experience God the most. You may be familiar with the book or the movie Unbroken. It's about Louis Zamperini. Uh, Louis grew up in Southern California um, to immigrant parents. And uh, Louis got in trouble all the time. And so in high school, his brother was on the track team. He's like, I had to keep you out of trouble. You need to come run with me. And so Louis begins to run, and he's actually a really, really good runner to the point of he gets offered a full scholarship to go and run at the University of Southern California. Not only that, but in 1936, he runs in the Olympics, the 5,000 meters, and finishes in eighth place. I mean, he's really good at what he does. But as you know, at that point in time, the, the war was, was coming into fruition pretty big. And so he enlists, like most men were doing at that age, or that young age, into the Air Force. Well, he's on the, this search and rescue uh, mission in May of 1943 on this B-24. The plane crashes into the Pacific Ocean about 850 miles south of Oahu. And eight of the 11 crewmen are instantly killed in the crash. Three survive and get on this raft. Well, over the next 47 days, only two of them survive, and one of those are Louis. And for about 2,000 miles, they drift in the ocean. Uh, they're hungry. They are thirsty. Um, fighter jets from the other, uh, the enemy were coming over and still shooting at them, trying to kill them. They're in shark-infested waters. I mean, everything you can imagine is terrible. They were experiencing well, after 47 days, they finally are coming up to the Marshall Islands. They are rescued, sadly, by the Japanese Navy, who then for the next two years put them in this horrific prison camp. Well, as Louis is thinking back to and sharing those experiences, specifically on the raft, he says this. He says, when you reach the end of your rope and there's nowhere else to turn, you're going to turn and look up. So that's all we did on that raft was pray morning, noon, and night. Sometimes 
we have to get to the darkest places in our lives to be able to experience and encounter God. I'm not saying that's everyone's story or journey, but I think for many people, that's the road that we are on. And that no matter what anyone says to us, no matter what anyone does for us, we just never find the peace that we think that we are looking for. And it's not until we encounter those deep, dark places, those crises in our life, that we finally encounter God and truly experience God very much like Jacob does here in his life. Who, by the way, <laughs> Jacob doesn't know how to quit, does he? Because what does Jacob ask God to do? Jacob asks God to bless him. Look at verse 27. What is your name, the man asked. He replied, Jacob. Well, your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name, the man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. It's in our dark places that we can see God, encounter God. We can experience God like Jacob. We can wrestle with God. But I truly believe those are the places where we are changed and where you and I can be transformed. Because that's Jacob's life, his whole life. He hasn't been wrestling all this stuff or people. He's been wrestling with God. And God jumps in and changes and transforms Jacob. In fact, he does something pretty big here. Um, he changes Jacob's name. Now, name changes or names were very important in the Bible. And if we look at the etymology of names and this name Jacob in Israel, we, we see how God changes, changes Jacob. Jacob, his name means deceiver. It means hill grabber. It means wrestler. And so if you look at that name and you look at Jacob's life up until this point, Jacob's life has been all about him. He has been extremely selfish in his life. He's always been looking out for himself. And then God jumps in. God wrestles with Jacob. And God says this, your name now is not going to be Jacob anymore. Your name is going to be Israel. And what this means is that this shows the transformation that is taking place in Jacob's life. Israel means God rules. God protects. God preserves and so for Jacob it means hey Jacob now because of this name change because you have wrestled with God you belong to God you are fully God's you don't need to wrestle with other people anymore you don't need to wrestle with yourself you don't even need to wrestle with God because now you are fully and truly God's how does Jacob celebrate this look at verse 30 Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. Here's his darkest hour in his life, and he encounters God. He doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow, right? He, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He, he doesn't know if he's going to live or going to die when Esau shows up. But here's God saying, hey, hey, hey Jacob, I, I saved you. Hey, Jacob, I'm going to protect you. Hey, Jacob, I'm going to bless you got to understand something this has been a 20-year process at least in Jacob's life it's been 20 years that he's been wrestling with God 
And if we go back to what Joel talked about last week in Genesis chapter 28, at that point, Jacob's life is very different, isn't it? Again, he doesn't have anything. He doesn't have uh, spouses. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have livestock. He doesn't have possessions. He doesn't have any of that stuff. It's not until he's changed by God and what we're talking about today that brings him the peace that he's been looking for. But as we go back to what Joel was looking at last week, we also find when we see Jacob, he is in the middle of nowhere. And in Genesis chapter 28, verse 11, here's how it reads. It says, Jacob stopped for the night because the sun had set. If you're familiar with westerns, what usually happens at the end of the movie is the sun is beginning to set. And then you see the words, the end, show up on the screen, right? And so if we look at what's going on with Jacob back in chapter 28, this is some really good imagery of, of where Jacob was in his life. He felt like at that moment that his life was pretty much over. He was about ready to give up and to, to move on. It's like the, the, the end was getting ready to show up in Jacob's film. But look back at verse 31 of chapter 32. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Jacob's not only been changed, he's not even been given this new name, but it's a brand new day for Jacob. He doesn't still know what's going to lie ahead for him. He doesn't know if his brother's going to come and actually follow through with what he said 20 years earlier and kill Jacob and kill his family and take all his possessions. He doesn't know that, but what he does know is that no matter what takes place, no matter what happens, God is with him. Because for Jacob, it's a brand new day. As we look at this part of this journey that Jacob is on, what is it that we learn about ourselves and about others and, and about God? Well, I think the first place we have to begin is we have to ask a question. And it's a question I think all of us have to answer. And here's that question. What are you wrestling with God about? When you look at your life, when you think about where you are right now, what are you wrestling with God about? Because I truly believe every single one of us are wrestling with God about something. It, it could be healing for someone who is sick and you, you love and, and God just doesn't seem to be doing what you've been praying would, would happen. Or, or maybe there's someone in your life that's been taken from you way too early and, and that pain is there and and you're like, why, God, why would, you, why would you do this? They have so much life left. Or maybe you're in a strained relationship, and again, you're praying about this, and you're hoping this marriage is going to work out, or your family member, that connection will, will be re rebuilt and repaired, and, and yet these prayers don't seem to be answered. Maybe these are the things that you're wrestling with God about right now. Or it could be you're wrestling with God about God, right? Maybe you're, you're back here, you're in the church, and that's your wrestling match with God. You had a bad experience a few years back or many years back, and you kind of swore off church, but, but for some reason you're here, like, I'm going I'm to try this again, I'm going to see what happens, and you're just hoping and praying you're not going to experience that again because you were burned by the church, but you're trying to, trying to figure out why, why did I experience that in, in that last church setting? Is this the way all churches are? Maybe that's your, your wrestling match with God. 
Or, or you look at your life and like, God, why are you allowing these things to continue to happen in my life over and over and over again? I'm trying to do my best to follow Jesus, but, but yet it, these things keep happening. God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Maybe that's your wrestling match with, with God. Or it could be you look at the world around you, like many people do, and we see good people and bad things are happening to them. We're like, God, I know these people. I care for them. I love them. I mean, why? Why are you allowing these things to happen to them? Maybe that's your wrestling match with God. I don't know what it is for you. But I believe we have to answer that question. What are we wrestling with God about? And here's something practical you can do. Write that thing down, or probably like for many of us, write those things down that we're struggling with God with, that we're wrestling with God with. And again, it may be our ambitions, our love life, our relationships, maybe God, whatever it may be, write those things down, see those things, uh, understand they're there, name them, and, and then I would tell you to do what Jacob did, pray about them. And continue to ask God to give you direction and peace and to change and transform you as you wrestle with God in these areas in, in your life. But then here's the second thing I would say, that in your weakness, that's where you experience God. We wrestle with God so often in our weaknesses. And, and the reason is because those are when crisis hit, right? Those are the times that we are afraid. Those are the times that we are scared and, and stressed. And we don't know where to turn. We don't know where to go. We do feel lost. And yet, it seems like those are the moments that God jumps into our lives. And we encounter God there. Now, there's something important to understand, though. The reality is God never left. Now, we think God kind of, it's kind of this image we have of God, that God just kind of jumps in and out of our life when God wants to do that and things are bad. Oh, here comes God. God's going to jump in and help. That's us, right? We're like Jacob. We, we kind of keep ourselves away from God until we need God. But God's never gone anywhere. God's always been present. But it is in those crisis moments. It's in those deep, dark places in our life, in those moments of life that's really hard and we struggle, that it seems like God is jumping in. Well, God's there, and those are the places that we encounter and we experience who God is. We notice God's presence. And we can experience God in those dark places too. In those weaknesses that we face. And this was lead to this next part to this. When you experience God in your weakness, you have to learn to hold on to God. When you're in those dark places, here's what we want to do. When it doesn't seem like life is going the way that we want and the direction we want it to go, and maybe you've been praying about something for 20 years and nothing seems to be happening, we want to get to that place and we just want to give up, right? We, we just want to say, I, I'm done. Kind of like Jacob, probably 20 years earlier. But that's when we need to remember we need to hold on to God, that God has always been there and God will always be there and God will change us and transform us through this tough time that we're, we're in, but also that God will bless us. And what are those blessings? Well, God gives us life, real life, true life, the ultimate life that we can only experience by not letting go of God. But that's hard because I am afraid too many times it feels like for us the sun is setting, right? Those, those dark places are, are getting deeper and they're getting darker, but 
But God will use those weakest moments in our life to mold us, to grow us, to strengthen us. And if we can hold on to God, you know the beauty in all this? The sun will rise again. There's a new day for you and me. It might be 20 years down the road, but that's what it means to hold on to God and the weaknesses and the crises and those dark moments in our life because God will give us a brand new day. Are you wrestling with God? something in your life with someone with yourself with God and if so are you holding on to God and holding on so tight like God I'm not going to let you go until you show me what these steps are for me until you show me what this life looks like until you bless me as I move through on this journey in my life with you are you holding tight to God in the wrestling match of your life. When our kids were younger, I would wrestle with them on the floor, right? Um, I outweighed them, stronger than them. I knew all the wrestling moves back in the day, right? But so often, you know what I do? I let them win. Now, why would I let them win? I, I wanted to give them a little bit of confidence that they could sometimes beat their dad. I, I wanted them to win, so we could have some fun, and they would continue to want a wrestle. I let them win because I love them. How does God let Jacob have a draw with him in a wrestling match? I mean, let's be real. God was way stronger. God was way bigger, more powerful. Well, the reason is that God became weak so Jacob could become stronger. God became weak so Jacob could learn who he was. God became weak so that Jacob could fully encounter God in, in this crisis in his life. And he is changed and transformed by God because of that. And you may be saying, well, well, well I don't get that. How does that fit for me? Well, it's this act of communion that we do every single Sunday morning. Because I want you to think about this for a second. Maybe even close your eyes and, and kind of imagine this. What did God do? God became weak so we could become strong. God allowed a dark day in God's life, the death of Jesus, to be God's weakness. Why? So that in our darkest days, we would have something to hold on to. That in the crisis that we face in our life, we would be strengthened. Because if you think about the sun for God, I'm sure on that Friday as Jesus is being crucified, it probably in some ways felt like the, the sun was setting, right? But what happens on Sunday? Jesus rose again. The sun rose again. To be reminded that in our darkest moments, in the crisis that we face, we get to see God's incredible strength in our life. And we got to see that in the resurrection of Jesus, which brings you and me hope for the life that we have. Hope in the crisis that we face. It brings us peace in the struggles that we may deal with in our lives over and over and over again. That, that strength that we are given takes away our fears. It takes away our stresses. 
and leads us to the place that God wants us to go, whatever that may be for us. So this morning, and really every Sunday when we take communion together, may the bread and the juice be a reminder we, we don't have to wrestle with anyone anymore. We don't have to wrestle with ourselves anymore. We don't have to wrestle with God anymore. God says, I am here for you. I became weak, so now you can become strong. So you can experience the peace and love and hope that comes through my son, Jesus. And through this act of communion, we are reminded that God is with us, that God is for us, and that God will change us and transform us. But what you and I need to do is hold on tight. Attention, 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 attention this morning.